I would say it, Texas is in a weird spot here. Um, on the one hand, according to return to office metrics, which, you know, take those with a grain of salt, but according to the metrics we have, cities like Austin and Dallas have some of the highest um, return to office rates of any cities in the country. Um, people are coming back, they're working more than they are in a New York or in a Los Angeles. That said, they're still pretty low. Um, and, and especially sort of class B offices are, are definitely feeling it. Um, and, and you're seeing the same things happen in, in Texan cities that you're seeing elsewhere where people are saying convert to housing or make it co-working space. But at the end of the day, a lot of these buildings, it's just going to come down to um, whoever, you know, w when owners will be willing to rip the Band-Aid off and and accept a new valuation um, for their buildings, things that just aren't worth the same that they were and, and that won't be. Um, and so then that will allow another party to come in and buy it at that reduced basis and and find some sort of workout deal that will make sense for it, whether it's a teardown or a gut renovation or something. The other interesting aspect of this is that in every return to office conversation, someone will talk about the flight to quality and, and the desire for smaller, higher quality amenities in the, in office space. And we've seen that here too, but in Austin, at least where I'm based, there's just been a ton of new office development in the last five years. And we're seeing a lot of even that top tier space come up for sublease. So owners are fine for now. Tenants are still on the hook for the duration of their lease. Um, but when you see tenants like Meta, um, like 3M, TikTok, really just like sort of blue chip tenants, really big names in tech, when they say, you know, we don't actually want this office space anymore, um, I would certainly be worried if I owned those buildings. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. And today we're taking a look at one of our southern markets, Texas. Yeah. So as we know, Texas was extremely, extremely hot, both physically and on the investment side. In 2020 and 2021, we saw huge waves of multifamily investment as buyers were looking to cash in on outsized rent growth hitting not only Texas, but the rest of the Sun Belt. Right. And because many Texas cities took a, I guess we can call it more relaxed approach to COVID restrictions, office leasing didn't really take the same hit as we saw in cities like New York, for example. Um, so that movement among people, that buoyed demand for office leasing and office properties. But now rent growth has slowed and a lot of major tenants are starting to put office space up for sublease. So that's affecting office buildings both inside downtown areas, but also older product in the suburbs. So coupled together, that means that distress has started to spread across the Lone Star State. So we'll go deeper into some of the distress we're seeing and how some enterprising investors are trying to capitalize on that. I chatted with TRD reporter Joe Lovinger about this, and we also got into how home builders have really capitalized on Texas land, but are now reeling from a slowdown in home buying. So there's a lot there. But first, let's get into our top stories from last week. So we saw some 
pretty damning statistics, defaults, and comments about the office market in the past week. NYU and Columbia, they both published a study last year on how far office values are expected to drop, and they updated their numbers this month, and the figures were pretty shocking. Isabella, do you have the numbers there? So in 2022, the study expected office values to fall 28% by 2029. Revised figures now have values plummeting at a staggering 44%. Right. And for the people who are already dealing with distress, values dropping further, that's a harrowing prospect. Last week, Scott Reckler, he's the CEO of ArcSAR, he said he would turn back the keys on a Fidei office property, 61 Broadway. RxR defaulted on the $240 million loan back in December when it stopped making payments. And then in May, the loan went into maturity default. This isn't the first office tower RxRs agreed to hand back, though, right? Were there others earlier this year? Yeah, this is the first address we have, but in February, Reckler said there were two office buildings on which he intended to turn over the keys to his lender, and the Commercial Observer reported they were both in Brooklyn. So this is the first Manhattan tower we know of. What I found interesting is that Reckler is going to opt for a deed in lieu of foreclosure. And what that means is that he'll be handing over the title of an office property to cover a bad debt. Reckler said that decision was a calculated choice based on what these assets were worth. And he called the strategy Project Kodak. So meaning that the less desirable office buildings in this metaphor are film um, and we're living in a digital world. It's interesting because 61 Broadway isn't in bad shape, right? Didn't RxR just renovate it? Yeah, that's kind of one of the holes in Reckler's reasoning. So 61 Broadway is this art deco building. And FIDI, it went up in the mid-1910s. But the firm did a remodel in 2018, and it describes the building as a Class A office space, which is what we know to be in demand still in New York. So it's not just Class B and Class C properties that are taking the hit. Right. Yeah. The distress, it's touching all classes at this point. Isabella, I know you went to ICSC recently, which is the annual retail real estate conference in Vegas. So wondering if there are any takeaways there that you wanted to highlight. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. There was a lot of conversation, as you might imagine, around the bank collapses, financing is tight, deal volume is slow. It's definitely tough out there for commercial real estate as a whole. But I thought it was interesting. I talked to a couple people who said they had more time on their hands now so they could I talked to one person who said that this was his first time going to ICSC because he actually had space on his calendar now because deals were slowing up. So back in New York, the Flatiron Building finally went back up to auction, and there was a winner who will undoubtedly be good for the money this time, at least it seems so. Jeff Garral made the winning bid at $161 million, which was a steal compared to the $191 million the infamous Jacob Garlic failed to pay when he missed a deposit deadline in March. Garal had the second highest bid in the first auction and could have taken the property for $189.5 million when Garlic defaulted. So it's a good deal in that regard, too. And if I remember correctly, Garal was a legacy owner, right? So he held the property before. Yeah. So the building landed with a familiar face. Garal and a group of investors had been the majority owner with 75% of the building. And after the auction ended, he said winning the property was a big relief. He really, really wanted to keep the building. 
Right. And there was no sign of garlic last week either, right? Which we were sort of, you know, waiting to see if he uh, reared his head. No, no sign of him. But it was still a scene. TRD live streamed the auction and caught footage of a man who said he represented the Shell Company of 184 Broadway. There's some R-rated language. I don't think we have many younger listeners, but this is what he said. Get ready for the fucking lawsuits. And I'll tell you something else. You'll see you on either the appellate division or the fucking Supreme Court. Lovely, thank you. Court's open every day. You better but fucking believe it. Good, wonderful. No, no. Is that Jacob Garlic? No. (laughs) And was it Jacob Garlic? No, a different guy. Apparently he was upset Garal didn't bring a certified check for $100,000 that was required to be a registered bidder in the auction. But the auction referee confirmed that he'd brought the check so... The meltdown was confusing. All right. Okay. So let's end on a scandalous note and jump right into your conversation with Joe about what we're seeing in the Texas market. So, Joe, thank you for coming on, Um, a frequent guest of Deconstruct. (laughs) So, you know, today we wanted to talk about Austin and Texas and just some of the trends that we're seeing. And I think one of the best story is to kind of set up this episode is a story that you had about how Texas was officially the fastest growing state in the U.S. Sure. So Texas is just blowing up as, you know, everyone who reads the news, watches the news is aware now. And around Austin in particular, there are all of these like boom towns that are popping up. Three of the top five fastest growing cities in the country were just on the outskirts of Austin. So Kyle, Leander and Georgetown. They're all just growing, you know, at the fastest pace of any city in the country. And what that means for real estate now is that you have a ton of high paid workers, a lot of people in tech um, coming into the city and they don't want to be in the city proper. They want to be able to get some land. They want to spread out a little bit, which is the classic sort of Texas sprawl. And um, what they're doing is they're moving to these towns. Kyle didn't even have a stoplight until like 2009. And now it's literally the fastest growing or third fastest growing city in the country. So we're just seeing massive growth and and a ton of opportunity for real estate as a result. And you're one of those people, right? You moved to Texas. You're you're driving <laughs> that that fastest growing number. So yeah, obviously this presents a lot of opportunities for developers, brokers, etc. And one of the things is developers love to move where people are moving, right? They want to capitalize on that. And you had a story on type of development that has become very popular. You kind of alluded to it. These sprawling suburban neighborhoods that are built by home builders. Can you talk about that story? Sure. So that was the first thing that really intrigued me when I moved to Texas. Um, I would drive around and there would just be these almost like endless, endless expanses of houses that looked really, really similar to each other. And just sort of that textbook suburbia. It felt like I was in a Levittown of the 1940s or something. Um, and and it, it's just what really fascinated me was how integrated they were with the city at large. Um, these are these developers aren't just building houses, they're helping cities expand their sewer lines, their you know, electric lines, water supply systems. And when you drive down the main roads of, of a city like Leander or Kyle, you see on the side of the road, instead of billboards saying, you know, McDonald's a mile down the road, it'll say um, invitation homes development one mile down the road. And then, and it just goes, you have eight or nine different mass built developments all on the same road. Um, so it was just a fascinating real estate trend to me at first. Um, and then the more I started looking into it, the more I realized that it's not just something that 
you know, some people get tired of the city and they want to move out to the suburbs, but these are supplying like 80 to 90% of all the new housing units that are going up around these cities. So really it's, it's become a thing where if you want to make a difference in the residential markets down here, you, you do this, Um, you, you build these mass planning communities where yes, you have a ton of homes, but you also have a pool. Um, You might build a school or a new town hall building, sports fields, you know, the amenities are really, I I haven't seen anything like it before. It's just the variety of stuff that people are building. They'll, they'll, you know, put up office towers next to them so that people don't really have to leave ever. You know, you just, you wake up, you go to work, come back. And then, I mean, that the one thing that could kill them, I think is, is, is traffic The commutes in and out from a place like Georgetown to downtown Austin um, during rush hour is just, it's awful. You know, it's bumper to bumper the whole way. And, and these are cities, Dallas, Austin, Houston, that don't have particularly great public transit systems. So you are really reliant on car travel to get to your job. And so what we're seeing a lot of developers do in response is that they are looking at this more as a holistic, we can't just build houses. We also need to build retail shops. We need to build offices um, so people can just stay here the whole time, you know, and then maybe they go into Austin on the weekend or something. Got it. You're like building out cities. It's kind of amazing. You mentioned Invitation Homes. Who are some of the other home builders that are really prominent in this space? So some of the biggest players that we've seen are national builders, companies like Lennar, DR Horton. They're building, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of homes at a time and and just, you know, dominating the sprawl out here. Um, but we do also have some big local players, companies like Larkspur. They're just expanding at such a rapid rate. And, and you can't go to one of these new towns without seeing one of their developments. One thing, and I see a lot of chatter around this on Twitter, is that a lot of these home builders have suffered from a lot of cancellations as mortgage rates have soared. Are we seeing that in Texas? Are they starting to pull back a little bit? Are they selling off land or slowing developments? How are home builders in Texas responding to this? Yeah, I had a source describe the home builders to me as as operating like sheep, um, which I think he kind of said that in a joking way, but he meant it, you know, in, in the sense that they're all very afraid to have uh, non-performing homes on their balance sheets. They want to be able to have homes sold before they can even build them, if possible. Um, and so when interest rates started to rise and mortgage rates rose alongside them, buyers started to pull back, you know, cancel, cancel home buys and, and activity slowed. Um, and almost immediately you saw a lot of home builders start to dump their, their development sites. Um, a lot, it, it's kind of technical, but what a company like uh, Lenar will do is since, since land is such a local business, they'll allow local firms to buy the land and get it fully entitled for a, for a master plan community. And then they'll buy that entitled land from the local player. Um, and so almost immediately, big home builders started to dump those off of their balance sheets to stay thin and, and, and not be weighed down by those, by those assets. And so I think the fear that I've heard from a lot of local developers and, and land people is, is that this slowdown in buying is just temporary and that all of the fundamentals that made Texas the hottest market in the country, things like um, young, uh, wealthy, growing population and um, you know, low cost of land, no income tax, all of these fundamentals that made it such a hot market they haven't gone away. Really, the the issue is is higher rates, but 
some buyers are just saying, okay, this is the new normal. I'll still buy at a 6% mortgage rate. And others are, you know, they're on the sidelines and they're going to get involved as soon as rates come back down. Um, and so the, the fear then is that you'll have a ton of buyers who want a home and all of the mass home builders just won't have the land to build to keep up with that demand. And so that'll lead to sort of a second version of what we saw during COVID, which was huge bidding wars, tons of competition over houses and just and not enough supply. Yeah, we touched on how home prices across Texas have soared as, you know, so many people started moving to Texas, especially in 2020 and 2021. One thing that I find fascinating and frustrating anytime I've had to look at Texas is the fact that property sale prices, both residential and commercial, do not have to be disclosed. You cannot figure it out. You had the story about how this is affecting appraisers in Texas. Can you talk about that? This was a really fun one to write because it's another one coming from New York that to me just the difference stood out immediately in reporting. You know, in New York, deed records are public. You can see how much someone paid for an apartment. It's a ton of fun for nosy people. But in Texas, they're not. And so appraisers have to work on very little, small scraps of information, what they can find. So for residential home sales, they can often find them on the MLS. Um, but for commercial sales, you know, they have premium subscriptions to things like CoStar. And, and you know, what ends up happening is that you do have some brokers whether for purposes of ego or because this is their first deal in Texas and they don't know that this is the law here, um, they'll they'll put this, the the price uh, in CoStar and then appraisal districts can find it and that gives them a comp not only for that building but for nearby similar buildings and they're kind of working off of that information and so it's property tax appraisals are coming out now and. And there have been some huge increases in appraisal values for residential homes and, and for commercial buildings. So um, what has ended up happening is, is there's this cottage industry now of, of attorneys and not even attorneys, but just interested people who are handling um, protests where they'll essentially go to the appraisal district and say, you know, you got this wrong. Here's why. And I've, I found a couple of people who have actually not just done you know dozens of these, but they've done thousands, and it causes huge firestorms in these appraisal districts, which are usually not particularly well staffed and um, can be overwhelmed by this kind of thing. Some appraisal districts know this too, and what they'll do instead is, is particularly with a new development, sort of a newer developer, someone who hasn't been building in Texas, they'll come in and say, "You just built this multifamily property. I think it cost you two hundred million dollars to build that." And the developer might say, you know, well, like, of course I didn't. I spent $150 million and here's why. And then they'll show them documentation. And then suddenly they say, okay, great. Now we have this comp and we have great documentation to prove that this was the cost of the building. Any similar building, we can work on that. So, you know, I wanted to bring up the office market. We've seen so many downtown office markets across the country. LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Portland. They're not faring well. There's very high vacancy office valuations are down. A lot of people are telling me we don't even know how to value an office building right now. Are we starting to see signs of office distress in Texas and signs of distress in general? I would say it, Texas is in a weird spot here. Um, on the one hand, according to return to office metrics, which, you know, take those with a grain of salt, but according to the metrics we have, Cities like Austin and Dallas have some of the highest um, return to office rates of any cities in the country. 
um, people are coming back, they're working more than they are in a New York or in a Los Angeles. That said, they're still pretty low. Um, and, and especially sort of class B offices are, are definitely feeling it. Um, and, and you're seeing the same things happen in, in Texan cities that you're seeing elsewhere where people are saying convert to housing or make it co-working space. But at the end of the day, a lot of these buildings, it's just going to come down to um, whoever, you know, w when owners will be willing to rip the Band-Aid off and and accept a new valuation um, for their buildings, things that just aren't worth the same that they were and, and that won't be. Um, and so then that will allow another party to come in and buy it at that reduced basis and and find some sort of workout deal that will make sense for it, whether it's a teardown or a gut renovation or something. The other interesting aspect of this is that in every return to office conversation, someone will talk about the flight to quality and, and the desire for smaller, higher quality amenities in the, in office space. And we've seen that here too, but in Austin, at least where I'm based, there's just been a ton of new office development in the last five years. And we're seeing a lot of even that top tier space come up for sublease. So owners are fine for now. Tenants are still on the hook for the duration of their lease. Um, but when you see tenants like Meta, um, like 3M, TikTok, really just like sort of blue chip tenants, really big names in tech, when they say, you know, we don't actually want this office space anymore. I would certainly be worried if I owned those buildings. Another sector where we're starting to see distress crop up across the country is multifamily. We had we had a story earlier this year about Tides Equities, a massive multifamily owner and a very aggressive acquirer of properties in the Sun Belt. And essentially the story was about how the firm was now struggling with rising rates because all of their debt on their properties was floating great. But they're not alone, right? You had a story about how multifamily owners in San Antonio are coming up against the same issues. Yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars of multifamily debt in San Antonio is facing that same, you know, issue. And according to TREP, it's like, you know, a majority of that debt um, comes from these story loans where it's there's a story attached to it. There's a value add play um, and someone might have bought at a low rate. Now they're through their caps. They're you know paying much higher costs for construction as well, um, renovations. So that kind of leaves them in, in in an unenviable position. And you're right that it's not just one firm. I mean, it's it's an issue we're seeing across sort of the Class B multifamily market right now. Got it. Yeah, as rates have risen, their debt service just becomes much much more expensive. Part of it is definitely rising rates, and then also rising construction costs, it, whatever you thought you could renovate your, your buildings for, that cost has gone up a lot. And the way that that landlords were planning on paying for all of this was by boosting rents. They looked at places like Austin, even Phoenix, and they said, rents are rising by double digits. You know, Even if that slows a little bit, we'll be fine. But in a place like Austin, for example, rent growth has slowed to basically zero. Um, so that plan is, has become kind of untenable um, in, in a lot of submarkets. To wrap up, you know, we're still on the topic of distress. There are certain investors who have formed funds and other vehicles to start capitalizing on distress, kind of maybe preemptively expecting some distress to start cropping up in commercial real estate in Texas. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So we've started to see a few funds raise money, Bradford companies, Skywalker, um, nothing of the, you know, private equity giant, $3 billion type of, uh, of, of dollar amount. But we're seeing folks who are picking off a lot of like $20 million, $30 million deals. Um, and from everyone I spoke to, it sounded like there's some cracks in the wall right now, but in the next six to nine months, that's when people really expect a lot of refinancing issues to come up as as property owners try to refi and they just can't get anywhere near the amount of, um, they can't get anywhere near the rate they were getting before. Um, people are expecting a lot of issues to come up. And, and again, like I said earlier, it's not necessarily that there's an issue with the properties or with the underlying, you know, demographic information of Texas. It's just that some property owners are just going to be in a place where their debt is much more expensive than they can afford for it to be anymore. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're taking a look at the luxury market in Palm Beach. Tune in then.